Episode 5 of the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast features conductor Damien Urio, currently the music director of the Milton Keynes City Orchestra, and Alexander Van Ingen of the Academy of Ancient Music. The Academy of Ancient Music will be playing Bart's John Passion on Good Friday this year, the opening chorus of which, if you don't already know, you can hear right now. This podcast was recorded in the King's Place foyer in London and runs to an astonishing 56 minutes, an illustration of how animated and rich our conversation became. But because I know we're all busy people, and because some might consider the prospect of listening to 56 minutes of unedited conversation almost unbearable, I've taken the unprecedented step of including some edited highlights first. On the other side, you, I mean, you, you need luck. You need uh, opportunities to open up. But I, I'm a big believer that you, you make your own luck and you, you make, make your, your own, own opportunities. Luck, exactly. How did you by, make? But, well, you make your own opportunities by bothering to turn up. And if you that's uh, setting the bar quite low, though. Well, which isn't it? Is what they think they are. Also, the idea of elite is complete another rubbish. Yes, we are elite because we've worked bloody hard all yes, our lives, yes, just as an elite, elite sportsman has, and we've got no um, shame to say. If you talk too much about how exciting every concert is, and somebody comes for the first time, it's not exciting. They'll think, well, if everybody else finds that exciting, and I don't. It's that's it's me, and I don't enjoy this art form, and I won't come back again. But I'm saying actually, you need to come and you need to be a part of it. And one of these concerts you come to is going to, you know, change your life. I hated the Crisel can, uh, Concerto. One, two, sorry, three. I realise uh, all um, the introduction of variations. Uh, one. Yeah. I played one, and I did the introduction of variations for my university audition I hated both of them oh, but obviously I realised that you nice programmed them, so <laughs> for, me to, for me to say that I hated That's them is not really helping <laughs> <I think. laughs> well you can come for the Mozart in the second half no press ticket we <laughs> talked about other things too freelance life there's quite a lot of stuff about freelance life the decline of the dictator conductor the life of the record producer how conductors handle jokes in rehearsals I didn't realise there was a process and what links box sets with classical music Alexander also introduced us to some of the Academy of Ancient music's forthcoming concerts but it didn't necessarily start off looking like it was going to be a long conversation I mean I could have edited out the beginning but because for the sake of authenticity and because I'm reasonably comfortable in my own skin I figured I'd keep the opening question of mine in brace yourself it is a little crass Um, it says on your bi- biography that you were born into a distinguished family of Italian and English musicians. Yes. That's the first, that's the opening sentence. Should um, I know them? Um, you may know of them. I mean, I'm third generation, but my mother has been, is a very distinguished violinist here, still teaches at the Royal Academy. Right. And at Trinity has led most of the orchestras here at one point or other. It's called Dinah Cummings. Uh-huh. Uh, she had two brothers, both unfortunately who are dead now, but one was in the RPO for 30 years in the first violin section, and the other was the principal cello of the LSO for 25 years, Douglas Cummings. Okay. He's a okay. very well-known uh, musician in London. Um, my father is, uh, or was, he's retired now, a, a very um, a successful viola player. He always freelanced because my parents both played a lot of chamber music um, and then uh, did the, sort of the, the, the session work and the freelancing work. And my mother's father, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a viola player who studied in Manchester in the oh, in the 30s, uh, played in the Halle um, with people like Frutwangler and Rachmaninoff, and then moved to London, played with the Philharmonie, the LSO, before going on to freelance life, and played in the RAF Orchestra in the War, played at the Potsdam Conference, etc., etc. I could carry on, wow. but we've got to talk wow. about I mean, two <laughs> of us here. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm... I- 
I'm really surprised. I mean, I don't mean that I'm surprised that you have that background, but more like you've obviously had music in your life all the time. I was brought up, yeah, with music around me all the was time. Was there pressure? Did you, did you experience any, not intended pressure, but did you experience that sort of, I suppose this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Mm, well, my parents will probably disagree with me when I speak about this. I have to be very careful what I say. Uh, no, um, it was expected that me and my brother and sister would learn an instrument, absolutely, when we were young children, just as I expect my children to learn an instrument. But my parents never said to me, we should go into the profession. They wanted us to be able to have the opportunity uh, to be able to go into the profession if we wanted. So in other words, we should take it to a certain level to have the choice. Because as any musician, but particularly as a string player, if you don't start at a young age and you don't practice every day, you'll never have the technical ability to be able to take it on. What did you play? I was a violinist. I am a violinist still, I suppose. I might still play, not professionally, but I play at home and I practice and I often bow parts, for example, so I'll Ooh. pick up the violin. Oh, you bow up parts. Of course, yeah. I remember doing that as a yeah, professional yeah, yeah. manager. I but it's important, it's important to, um, to be able to, to, to do that, I think. Saves a lot of rehearsal time. But do you bow up? Do you pull up all the parts? No, no, no. I'll, 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 I'll get them to uh, do yes. the rest. <laughs> right. Oh, right. No, no, okay. No. <laughs> I try to avoid that part of the work. Yes. Yeah, that's the really hideous thing yeah. where you find yourself up at half past 11 at night just putting yeah. markings well, in. Two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. Yes. <laughs> um, you play cello, don't you? Is that right? Uh, yes, I, I, I played the cello for a little bit. Yes. Uh, uh, not so much anymore, sadly. It sits in, a, sits in its case in the, in the corner, but it came out at Christmas for a little bit. What did you do with it at Christmas? Did you just um, take it out of the case and look <laughs> at it? No, it was surprisingly in tune. Uh, no, I played the, uh, the Haydn St. Nicholas Mass uh, on Christmas morning in Chester Cathedral, which was a wow. really wonderful experience, actually, I have to say. What a lovely thing to do on Christmas it, Day it morning. It was, and sitting in the, middle of, in the middle of the cathedral choir, who sing exceptionally well, with the organ right above us. Um, and uh, both for the St. Nicholas Mass and of course we were sitting there while they were doing the rest of the service, the Mass is integrated in, in the service. Uh, so they had all the, the great Christmas carols and the, the verse 7 of um, yeah. O Come Be Faithful, which you don't get until Christmas morning. But sitting right near the middle of the choir for that is something remarkably special. So. What prompted you to stop playing? I don't mean uh, on Christmas I, Day morning, I mean as in, you know, just, just professionally <laughs> speaking. No, I'm, I, I never stopped. Uh, in the sense, I, I never played professionally, professionally. Uh, for a career or anything like that um, and it just gra gradually subsided as other work took over I mean, it's, it's a time question uh, inevitably um, when you're trying to play music on the outside of what you do professionally uh, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or whether you work in the music business there's only so many hours in the day you can play an instrument or do a job um, I noticed from your website that you have been involved in the endless recordings you have a page that have that has many many recordings on it as a record producer yeah well i mean that's what i've done for the last you, 15 or so years so there's a, you, you a reasonable so discography you seem so young uh how did you what prompted you to get into record production uh i suppose going a long way back i was always interested in um the technical side of things i did a lot of uh lighting and sound for uh, theatrical productions and so while i was at school and what have you um, I studied music and audio engineering, the, the Tonmeister course at, uh, at Surrey, that, that people do, that's the course to do uh, if you want to go into that sort of world, uh, and started making records. But I, I did what everybody does uh, in this world, and I started carrying boxes, making cups of tea, coiling cables, oiling door hinges. Uh, and after you've done a lot of that for a lot of people for a few years, eventually people start to pay you to do it. Is, that, is, how, nice. is that how long you do it for? 
I, I, I you're you're an intern time. for three or four years. Uh, but, I mean, not so much. There are no formal positions, so I just followed around record producers I could find or engineers <laughs> I could find right. and said, do you mind if I come on your session to, to see how it's done, to see what's what? Right. I, I'm happy to turn up early and unload your van for you and help you pack it up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and within a couple of years, somebody will say, oh, actually, um, you know, I can't get to the gig early enough on Friday. Can you just take the rig and get it set up for me? And then you start to move from that. And while you're doing that, you pick up some of the gigs with uh, particularly young professional players who want to make a record but don't have a, a budget to get the big boys. You start to pick those up. Um, and eventually, a few years later, you realize that actually it's a job. And there's, there's enough of it to keep you going. I remember as a teenager being told that that's the kind of approach that I probably needed to adopt when I graduated, that I needed to sort of invest my time. And did you? And But I was impatient. And actually, I hear lots of people around about my age who, who followed exactly the same yeah. path that you did. And I sort of look back on that period of time when I was impatient and think, I should have held out just a little bit longer. And I, did you did you get impatient? Or did you think, no, it's fine, we'll, we'll get there in the end, slow and steady wins oh, no, no, well, all the time. Right. Um, but inevitably, when you're starting that, you're doing a, a wide variety of things. So it's not just classical music recordings, you're mm. assisting people on video shoots and film shoots and anything, because it doesn't pay either at all or very well, so you need to do as much of it as you can to, to earn the crust and put a roof over your head. But isn't that yeah. freelance life in general? Yeah. I mean, wow. you, you start any freelance life, you start off in the unknown, you start off yeah. at the beginning, and you're sort of not quite sure where you're going, and you, and you, you take on anything. And you, you create your own... Well, in yeah. order to... No, but you, <laughs> yeah. you, you do also, as musicians, you do all sorts of gigs at the beginning, just to make a bit of money, get a bit yeah. of experience, get your name out there. And get people to know that you exist, and yeah, that you do this thing, and you do it well, yeah. and you're good to work with, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But talking about uh, coffee machines, I did my work experience at 16, yeah. two weeks at CTS Studios in Wembley, which doesn't exist yeah. anymore, First day was Scandal, the film Scandal with John Hurt, and, um, about the Profumo Ooh, Fest. Yes, yes. And the LSO were in, so my uncle was in there. And uh, yeah, I cleaned quite a few coffee machines the first week. Yep. And, uh, but I had a great time there. It was yep. still when it was the old Ampex multi-track uh, yep. cassette well, tapes. And uh, it was, they were fantastic. They really did look after me and I learned a lot. And then, of course, went all digital, so it was all outdated straight away. But it was a great experience. So the LSO were there recording that the soundtrack for Scandal? In, in Studio One, yeah. yeah. It was my wow. first day. And in. that was a, wasn't Scandal a Channel 4 film? No, no, it, it was no. a. I think it was. Um, no, you're thinking the recent one. I'm going back a while. No, the, I remember. John I, Hurt yeah, one. No, I know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was a film film, but I, I don't remember. I just okay. remember the recording of the music. Uh, so yeah. you did that for two weeks? No, 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 they were, they were there for like a couple of days. Then right. we had people like Steve Wright came into Studio One. Then we did we did some jingles and then there was music for Inspector Morse or something like that. There was also, wow. it was a big studio CTS. It was one of the big ones. And you don't realise, I think often, even in just those two weeks, quite how much you learn because you're not, nobody's teaching it to you. You're just there yeah. and you just see it happen. It's all perfectly normal happening in front of you. Until yeah. you go somewhere else and you see it done differently, you think, hang on, why do they do it this way instead of yeah. that way. Yeah, well, it was just for me, it was something different yeah. instead of music, and, yeah. and I suppose just, it was quite interesting for me. I learned how to splice, put together. Yeah. Oh, I love to do Dub, that. things yes. like that. Yes. It's great. I still remember it. <laughs> Fantastic. And, but, and in all that sort of, that way of getting into a profession, be it as a, as a player or on the other side, you, I mean, you, you need luck. You need uh, opportunities to open up. But I, I'm a big believer that you, you make your own luck and you, you make, make your, your own, own opportunities. Luck, exactly. How did you by, make... But, well, you make your own opportunities by bothering to turn up. And if you... That's uh, setting the bar quite low, though. Well, isn't it? it is and it isn't, because I, I think you, you can look at a, a lot of people who moan that there aren't any opportunities, but also aren't prepared to take the ones that are there. So they'll say, oh, well, actually, that one's, that, that's kind of beneath me, or I don't have to do that stuff. You know, I've, I've, I've worked for four years and got this degree and that degree, and I don't need to do that stuff. You know, well, actually, 
I'm sorry to break it to oh, you. It's like you've I'm sorry, you've basically basically like I'm 54, I know. Because <laughs> that's basically what happened to me. Um, but if, if you're not prepared to go to, I mean, I did a, one of my favourite recordings, uh, just for the experience, but it was a long time ago now, late 90s, early 2000s, but um, in the Chapel Royal in Windsor Castle, recording the organ, uh, Roger Chapel was playing amazing place but you can only record late at night because it's on the flight path on Heathrow so you're recording at kind of midnight to 4am or something like that um, and there'd be quite a lot of people who I was a student at the time uh, who said actually I've got a actually, a pretty full programme of lectures and other things and responsibilities and other things to do and you want me to trek out to Windsor and then how do I get back and well they're not even paying for it so I mean uh, and, uh, okay, and it's very right. easy not to be bothered to do that sort of thing but actually you have to do it and if you start doing those then you, I guess you, you earn the respect of the people who are doing it with or for, and you'll come slightly higher up the list of people when to call on next time they want you or need you, and then you end up in places you wouldn't otherwise have been. And you, have to you get asked by people, you get, yeah. asked, you get, get asked back, you can climb the, rung, the rungs yeah. of the ladder bit by bit, similar to being a, a freelance musician. I ended up doing some work experience uh, at the tender age of 30 on a radio station, and I loved it. I loved every single minute of it, and... Um, I did it for about two and a half months and I remember feeling impatient then like actually I need the money I need some money somewhere yeah. somebody give me a job and and I stopped as soon as I got a full-time job offered me somewhere else I stopped and I actually hearing you both talk about it I sort of think oh god because <laughs> uh, three years is a long time to do that well I mean but it, it never really changes in an extent you're always building and growing so even when I realized that actually I was established a fairly full-time career as a producer I was still doing some engineering I was still doing editing but the balance is just shifting all the time and then once you're doing all producing the balance is just shifting the, the sort of artists you work with the amount of international travel and the sort of labels you're working for and, and so on so actually there's it isn't really a sort of industry you go and you say I do my block of time here and then no. I do my block of time no. as an engineer and then I do that you don't really get a promotion to become a thing you're a freelancer and every every week or every three day patch is different you're doing a different job for a different client somewhere else and that's just what it is so you're saying that you create you, that's exactly what you're saying Cre you create your own opportunities yeah and you don't say actually I'm not going to engineer that recording over there because that's not a good enough artist I'm not interested I mean that, that would be for me that would be a ridiculous thing to say because actually you never know quite what will come out of it. I, I, did, I did one recording which uh, the orchestra were keen to get out of it quite quickly uh, because they didn't have much time for the person who was... Oh, is he? Okay. Uh, for, for, the, for the soloist in question, uh, who shall remain nameless, um, and who you could probably guess was paying for it. Um, it, it, it wasn't the greatest couple of days of recording anybody's ever done, but you know, we've all had jobs like that where you're there and you've just got to get through it in as professional a manner as, as possible. Were they marking um, time? Is that what you're saying? Uh, but actually... Out of that gig, I met a conductor and somebody else, and we've ended up doing an enormous amount of work, really great and amazing work over the last uh, uh, seven or eight years as a result of that. So sometimes even the ones that feel at the time, you think, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Some of those can really turn into something beautiful at the end of it. That's so it's making up, making your own luck. Because of who you meet. It's meet exactly, making yeah. Own luck, yeah. So does that mean that you've always worked freelance, apart from now? Because uh, you were talking about when you were being a, a record producer, but yeah, so essentially a freelance life. And just, I, I was always freelance until I joined Decca five years ago. Right. Um, and I did a little bit of freelancing while I was working for them because there were some clients I couldn't bear to just kind of get rid of because I really loved working with them. I said, well, just as I've got this job, 
I, I can't not go and record these great projects over here. Uh, so I fit up a couple in um, around that. And then from Decca, now the Academy of Ancient Music. So the, the freelancing thing is, is sadly sort of behind me in, in many ways. What qualities do you think someone needs for that kind of life? <laughs> well, this all, that, that's suddenly nobody's got it. Freelance life. Freelance yeah. life. You've got, yeah. yeah. got to have a pinch of madness, don't you? Yes. Um, stubbornness. Yes. I mean, it, it helps that I don't have children. Um, so to that end, I don't have a feel a strong responsibility to provide for anybody except myself. Uh, so I've always known that if work doesn't come in, it's only me I'm looking out for. I don't feel I have to go and do something in order to, you know, uh, to support the family. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's fortunate. I'm not saying that's a prerequisite for being a, for a freelance <laughs> life. For this, but, but it, I have no children it, it, it's certainly and helpful. no responsibility. And I think you need some sort of belief that it will work out in the end. Because okay. there are always times when there, there are peaks and troughs and there are times of great activity and times of lesser activity. And you, well, you know. my, my father always said in the times of crisis, he always said, and my, my, I've come from a family of freelancers, said never look forward in your diary, always look back. Because yes. if you look back <laughs> you'll see, yeah. see what you've achieved. You've, well, yeah. That you've worked consistently yeah. and it may be in patches but you'll see over the space of months or years or whatever that you've consistently worked and therefore you will continue. And, uh, and we all go through that as a freelance. You look, you think, oh my God, how am I going to survive? And I have children, so yeah. sometimes I think I've got to feed my kids yeah. and keep a roof over their heads. And, um, and I try to calm myself by looking back, preferably at the busy patches, not the yeah. empty patches, and, uh, and think, well, okay, I've survived this far and I'll keep making my own luck and hopefully yeah. I'll still be kicking and screaming <laughs> and this, and a few years' when time. When you do have spare time, I guess the key, and I haven't really managed to do it myself, but when I look back at it, I think the key is to make really good use of it rather than spend it worrying too much. Well, yeah, um, you have to Because you look back at the end of the year making your own work. If only I'd had some more time, I could have learned this repertoire, I could have got into this music, I could have spent some time indulging in a, in a hobby, but there's never enough time. Well, actually, the, there were little blocks of time I could have used, but they occur when somebody cancels a project at the last minute because they've lost their voice and they need to move the sessions or whatever. And at that time, you go and rush off and do other things to try and fill the gap. I think if I went back to freelancing, I'd try and even that out a bit, take a little bit more time off. Well, yeah, time to think is important yeah. as well. Yeah. You talked about stubbornness, <laughs> and then you laughed. Yes, I'm still laughing. <laughs> which yeah. makes me think, maybe he's stubborn. Um, um, yeah, you'd you have to ask my wife that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, why stubbornness? Uh, stubbornness because, well, uh, look, in any, I suppose it's life generally, we have to cope with a lot of rejection. I think any freelancer first of all but especially being an artist you deal with rejection all the time and if you if you let that get the better of you and that is to do with stubbornness believing in yourself then you will never m make it in fact I had a conversation with a friend this morning who was who was down because uh, they've been rejected from an audition and I was trying to pick them up a little bit and I said look you know this is the way it is most of the time we will be rejected I mean whether it's by a promoter or an artistic manager, an agent, the public, a critic, that's part of the life. When we stand on stage, we're there to be criticised. So, yes, stubbornness. You have to believe in yourself and what you're doing as an artist, as a person, and in what you believe. And have you always thought that? I must be or joking, of course not. Every morning I wake <laughs> up and think, oh my God. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're delivering that. With I'm selling it really well. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's that one I've learned over the years yeah. as and well. And you have to be happy with what you're doing, because I guess being a conductor especially is very, or can be a very solitary life. Yes, uh, if you're yes. Going from it's very extreme. Uh, it's very extreme. Yeah. Abroad, and it's, you go back to your dressing room after a concert, 
Yeah. It's just you, and you might yes. have five days of rehearsals, and actually, it's just you. In well, the coming evening, from a from know. a violinist violinistic background, having been part of an yeah. auction myself, that transition for me was actually quite difficult uh, psychologically, because I was accustomed to being in the orchestra after a gig or a rehearsal, yeah. you know, the people to talk to, go out for a drink with or whatever. As a conductor, you... You don't do that, really? you? No, I mean, it does depend. I have a lot of friends around the world, some in orchestras, people that I know well, I've known for a long time, and we can go out. It doesn't change the relationship or anything like that, but you have to be wary as well. I still have to stand in front of the orchestra, and there has to be mutual respect there. There has to be, very much on both sides, a professional respect. And so you have to, to judge these things carefully. Also, you know, it's, I've got to get up in the morning, I've got to be in tip-top condition for that rehearsal. So I need to look after myself as well. And if that means being on my own, looking after myself, being selfish in a way, so be it, because I want to do the best. Do you like your own company? I've learnt to like it, I used to hate it. What did you hate about it? Well, I'm a very sociable person, I always have been. So like I said, in, the, in, in my previous career, I was always able to be with people. And I had to learn the first few years of my career to, as we were just talking about, going back to the hotel after the rehearsal mm. and just being on my own, with my own thoughts, etc., etc. And when you're not accustomed to that so much, it's not easy. Mm. Also, I was brought up in a fairly large family, I suppose. You know, I was accustomed to people around me. Yeah. And you also know from having been a player how players talk about conductors who come in and the tricks they get up to yeah well that's quite funny because you know sometimes I see somebody a joke or a trick or whatever come and I can see it a mile away because yeah. it used to be me doing that yes. stuff <laughs> and, you know nowadays I tend not to I tend not to react I just you know, get more experience Easy to as well how to deal with it what, so you can see the joke emerging some, yeah, not always, of course, you know, because now all the orchestra musicians listening will think, well, how can we put a fast <laughs> one on him now? Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, often you can sort of, you know, something will happen in the rehearsal or performance and you can see the little uh, the titters. The titters or whatever, and they think you don't see, but you do see. <laughs> of course <laughs> okay. you do. You're terrifying. Yeah, and then, now. <laughs> and then, of course, there's certain, every orchestra has its own little in jokes, and I know a lot of them, of course, so, you know, but well, I, I pretend not to notice a lot of What do time. you miss about playing violin? Um, I'm, I'm asked that question a lot, I must say. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, but oh, it's a... Oh, that's, that's such an awful thing no, to say. No, but you phrase it in a different way. Hooray! <laughs> but but if, I'd have, if I'd have stepped away from music, I would say I missed it a lot. But I've just changed the way I express music. So I don't really miss the violin a lot. Because I still have the, the means to express myself musically. Having said that... In many ways, being a violinist was, for me, a lot easier, simpler, because it's just you and the instrument you play. And whether there's one person there, or your cat, your dog, or a thousand people in a hall, you can still play. As a conductor, it's not so simple. First of all, because you need the orchestra. Mm. And secondly, because conducting is not just about music. The world of the conductor is a very, very complicated world, which, and you don't only deal with music. So I've had to learn how to say to, to put all that together, and to still keep focused on that thing that I always loved, which is expressing myself through music. What do you? What is complicated about it? Oh, well, oh, sorry, that makes it sound as though I think it's no, simple. No, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but you deal with a lot of non-musical things as a conductor. Uh, everything from bureaucracy to fundraising to politics to dealing with uh, the more, I suppose, grey areas in, in the music business, which exist in any business, of course. And even when you're just standing in front of 
an orchestra, there's an awful lot of effectively people management. Yeah, we're conducting it, it, just is ignoring the music part of it. Just people who don't like each other or in the principal horn, and you know, you know the principal See, horn, principal clarinet have history and they dislike each other intently, but they have to play solo together. My assumption and you're, was that, you know, that you, as that. conductor, that you sort of maintained a. I'm revealing my ignorance. But that you maintained a sort of certain neutrality where that was concerned, like, like you were yeah. explaining, Alex, as in there may be something going on between yeah. the first clarinet and the back of the violas, but actually we're here for the rehearsal and that's what's yeah. important. But yeah. actually, you're saying you're with, suggesting with, with it's, more, slightly it's different. more how you deal with it. So I think if you want well, if there's to, tensions, you have to yeah. you have to deal with it. But don't, no, no, I'm not saying you have to get it out in the open and <laughs> smash them around the head and say, "Look, you two, <laughs> no. yeah, no. here's a tenor yeah. goes to the pub and Although it's it quite interesting that you've suggested that, which does rather indicate <laughs> but, that that's your. Just strategy. go and sort your problems out <laughs> outside <laughs> and not here. But, but more that if you're if you're asking for something to be phrased a, a certain way and one of two players is doing it, the other isn't because they're being obstructed. You may, it may or may not actually help to ask them to go along with the other one if you know that there's a reason yeah, not to, okay. or that half the orchestra yeah. are kind of supporters of this person, half are supporters of that person, because there's a really current issue. Okay. There's, there's, that's pe I mean, there's a lot of people politics involved, and I think yeah. I w I've always said and maintained that conducting is minimum 50% psychology. Yeah because it's getting a group of between 30 and 130 people to to go with you with something, not yeah. necessarily to follow you, I don't agree with that necessarily, but to to um, believe in what you're doing yeah, and go that direction. Exactly, come on yeah. a journey together with you. And that is very much to do with psychology. Yeah. Uh, when I'm talking about politics, I'm talking about more, especially when you're music director, artistic director of somewhere, it's dealing with also um, the whole world that exists around it, which you have to, because we need to make sure that uh, you have the funding coming in and that could be from private to public. Uh, it's dealing with a lot of people, keeping them on board, selling the orchestra, getting getting, getting the whole uh, business side of it going. And as the conductor, you're very much the face of the orchestra. So you may have the chief exec or the artistic director or the board doing, um, let's say, the really hard behind the scenes work. But it does uh, mean today that a music director has to be a presence mm. within it because you're the one they see. Yep. You're the public facing part of the orchestra. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is uh, a very big part of a conductor's job nowadays is to be a face of something. Um, you, when you were talking about psychology, uh, I'll put the rustly thing down, that would probably help. <laughs> um, when you're talking about psychology, I was thinking about a documentary that I'd seen on Medici about um, Bernstein and there was some footage of him in various rehearsals and I had this quite a strong, re a, a strong reaction to Bernstein in those rehearsals because I thought, he's not a very nice man. He comes across as quite aggressive and antagonistic even though he's sort of bon viveur and, and, um, and charming. Uh, I wonder when the, the importance of knowing about psychology when conducting, when you think that came in. Because well, I wonder whether, whether you know, if, if you were to ask Bernstein, whether he would necessarily agree with you. Well, there's, there's a big difference today than the past. Of course, we, we often think back to the Toscaninis, uh, etc. Their psychology back then, the Shells, the Toscaninis, etc., was they were the, the boss, the dictator, and they mm. um, would just insist. Their word was law, full stop. And that was the way it was then. Um, things have changed a lot uh, in many ways. Uh, we are much more collaborative. I think the whole idea of the dictator conductor, and st people, I still read about it online, sometimes people talk about it, and it winds me up a lot. Because I'd say 99.9% .9 of my generation are collaborative. 
because we are dealing with musicians in orchestras who are highly talented, highly educated, have great experience, often more than I would have when I started my career especially. You can't not have respect for these people. Of course, I was brought up in a family of musicians, so I was always, it was ingrained in me, this idea of professional respect and mutual respect. I grew up playing chamber music. My parents played chamber music, so I approach it very much in that way. But times have changed. Um, the I think even somebody like Shorty, I think, um, the, the Screaming Skull, uh, had a, a certain eye for, ear for the psychology of, of an orchestra and of players. It's just that he approached it in a very different manner. And whereas now we're trying to be much more collaborative and take people on the journey yeah. with us. Uh, when do you think yeah, I, think, I think he would get a great... Still, I mean, those, those conductors who are known for that sort of behaviour still get an incredible result from an orchestra. It's not as though the screaming, the shouting, the I'm a dictator didn't yield good musical results. I mean, it did. But there were different but, times. But, but through, yes, a, but through yeah. a lot of pain. Yes. And, and they could get a musical result by firing people they didn't like or didn't play well and getting other people yeah, in I instead of encouraging a result. Also, it's, just a, it's a different approach. It's but. also to do with, with repertoire. Because when we go back then, a lot of the repertoire that we consider standard that an orchestra can play in very few, little rehearsal time uh, today it wasn't the same case then yeah. so they had to work incredibly hard to get certain results which today is um, is a given I think um, uh, going back to your question actually I think in the 90s especially it was a big big change um, it's partly to do with the education as well um, in conservatoires and universities around the world also because in my opinion your average level of your average musician in music conservatoire around the world has risen greatly. They're always the greats. They're always the not very good musicians. But that middle um, level of player is so high now. If you go, if you see any audition for any orchestra around the world now, the competition for one place in one orchestra is incredible. There are so many good players in the world nowadays that you are, you know, you stand in front of an orchestra of really, really great technical uh, musicians and people with great experience so you you would be silly not to tap into that mm. you'd not be doing your job properly if you thought you knew everything and didn't listen to these people both musically and what they have to say so has that leveled people off do you think uh, in terms of player versus conductor uh, yes in many in ways way. we mustn't forget also though that when you're standing in front of 80 people i mean 80 different voices at once is a mess you know 80 different opinions is a mess our job is to, to mould it into one voice. And so, of course, sometimes you have to go against other people's wishes, even if it's valid, because you have to have your interpretation. They have to speak as one, as you believe that Brahms, Mozart or whoever intended it. Then it's down to me as the conductor to live or die on the sword, as it were. It's a terrifying role. That, that sounds like you make it sound quite scary. Well, it is scary in many ways, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> I like a bit of danger. That's the stubborn I like thing. The, yeah, 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 yeah. But I love, I love risk as well. I've always been like that as, as a musician. I don't like safe. I never have. And I look to my, to my uncle Dougie, who was one of the greatest cellists that, that Britain produced. And he was heart on your sleeve musician. He didn't care. He just played. And he risked. And it was amazing. I look at someone like that, or look at my mother, or look at and the great musicians I work with. And I think we will all agree on that. The, the great musical experiences you've had are when there's something that's happened that was really powerful and not necessarily safe. How does that get conveyed to mainstream audiences? When I hear you talk about that, I completely understand and completely 
buy into the passion that you obviously have. Um, but it strikes me that um, there seems to be not sufficient time devoted to communicating what the excitement, what the fizz is around performance. And if more people understood what that fizz was, then maybe more people would buy into to classical music. Do you, am I saying... No, no, I understand what you're saying. It's a very difficult one to answer, I must admit, because, you know, at the end of the day, an audience should sit will have the opportunity to sit in a concert hall and feel that and our job is to allow them to feel something so if we've done our job properly they will feel ah, that okay. fizz yes. without words yes but I think another side of it if I understood your question correctly we can help by doing what, what many people do nowadays by presenting programs verbally depending on the situation obviously um, I do it a lot in different languages in different countries um, in order to let's say shine a light on a particular aspect of a piece to open a door to to that world a little bit mm. and you can convey that passion it's partly through the words or let's say open their ears up to something and then allow the music to speak for itself and the idea of risk uh, doesn't always mean that it works either no no I mean, of course if, you if, risk if, that's what if, I it, if it always worked and it always fizz then it wouldn't be a risk no no um, <laughs> if you see what i mean so, so if you're going to take a risk Inherent in that is that the risk is it might not yeah. have that. I mean, it's usually a calculated it, risk, it obviously. Of course, <laughs> no, of course, one tries to mitigate against yes, it, but yes. inevitably there's a chance that the concert won't be that exciting. And there are others who don't like taking risk where everything is perhaps a little drab. Um, but you know, not every football match is exciting either. I've never and been you, to a football match. Are you telling me that uh, you have? Can you tell? Have you been to? <laughs> you're wriggling uncomfortably <laughs> now, which suggests that maybe you Not haven't. every sporting event is exciting. Um, five days of a test match can go by until the last half hour okay. with very prosaic okay. play. Um, but I, there's a danger that you, people might expect. If you, I, I, guess if you, I'm, I think I'm, I'm saying if you talk too much about how exciting every concert is and somebody comes for the first time and it's not exciting, they'll think, well, if everybody else finds that exciting and I don't, it's, that's, it's no, me I and I don't enjoy this art form and I won't come back again. But I I'm saying actually you need to come and you need to be a part of it. And one of these concerts you come to is going to you know, change your life. But like we, it's impossible to guarantee that happen every concert because this isn't a manufactured Disney product that where you, you wheel out the same show night after night. I get it, you. Every show is unique in that sense. Uh, I think my point about fizziness was more about, um, certainly as a result of doing these podcasts, when I find myself talking to artists, to a certain extent they're, they're preaching to the choir, you know, I'm already bought into this. But, but actually when I see a musician talking passionately about yeah. their work, uh, and what their principles are, and why they're doing this, and why they love it. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded that the majority of people don't get an opportunity to to hear that, and I wonder whether that would have a positive effect. Well, I think you're, you're tapping into a very, very big discussion, which we probably don't have enough time for in this podcast, but about the relevance of classical music to general society today, which is a very, very big question. It is relevant, but we, as within the classical music world. Um, have to always develop our ideas about how to uh, get that out, that relevance, to, ex to explain why we're relevant, I suppose. I mean, that's a really bad way of expressing it. And allow people to, to, to experience it, to tap into it, because it's, it's easy and not expensive to go to classical music concert or not, but whatever. This whole myth of it being elite, and mm. all this whole discussion in England winds me up greatly because it's not at all. And if you spoke to your average musician, you'd find that they're not what they think they are. Also, the idea of elite is complete and utter rubbish. Yes, we are elite because 
we've worked bloody hard all yes, our lives, yes, just as an elite, yeah. elite sportsman has. And we've got no um, shame to say that an elite sportsman is elite. Quite right. Yeah. They are elite. Yeah. We are elite musicians as well. We shouldn't be ashamed of saying that. But if, yeah. but if anybody said that you're an elite musician, that would be, almost be like... That would be a derogatory comment. Well, that's an English way yeah. of looking at it because we think of the term elite in a certain way. We're talking about class, because of class, society, etc., etc. And, and, and more as if the classical world is an elite club that you yeah, can't yeah. Yes. be a member yes. of. And it's not that, actually. It's yeah, elite absolutely. players and performers here, just as in the theatre or in the, in the sports world. Isn't it, I guess because 20, 30 years ago, some of Andre Previn is a household name, mm. Jacqueline Dupre, mm. and other really core classical performers who weren't people who went and did crossover particularly or did other no. forms of music in an attempt to reach the wider audience they they just were it was, it was part of the public consciousness I mean so much so I mean in the 70s yeah, Andre Previn could uh, go on the Morecambe and Wife show and do a do a silly sketch but people knew who he was it and wasn't actually, a, when you a did, random person when you look through the history books uh, with pictures of um, Dupre and Barenboim in the late 60s you know, there's a real there's a real sense that they are almost like rock and roll stars yeah. or they're yes, being but then the they were yeah. they, it was that but times have changed as well again it goes back to relevance of classical music in society today we're competing against so much from uh, different musical worlds which have grown from rock to whatever's today and tomorrow which we are I suppose in many ways com competing for the attention of people yeah Sports, uh, TV, cinema, phones, YouTube, whatever. We, we, you know, it's, there's a whole noise out there. Well, in many ways, I think it's an instant gratification yes. thing. Where it's, it's very short attention span. It's do I like it or not? Yeah. I'll give mm. it 30 seconds and I'll yes. turn off if I don't like it. Um, actually, it's kind of and hard to get into classical music <laughs> that way. You, you often yeah. have to go through more than 30 seconds yes. before you get to the hook, as it were. Yes, even, 30 even minutes. Anything. Yes. Um, <laughs> let alone a, a large symphony. piece of marble where you, you're invested for the long haul. Yeah. You know, uh, when you're and in, yet you're people in. will invest in Game of Thrones. Well, I, you know, they'll sit down and binge watch a series. This is why I, I, I think that classical music will be all right. Right. Because I think that actually there is this newer trend for people to engage in things that are long partly on the basis that they are long and they mm. can immerse themselves in it and they can lose themselves in it. And the more that people watch large box sets or take themselves off a 24-hour binge of whatever it is, uh, I think the more opportunity we have, if we can engage those people to come to concerts and engage in our music, yeah, I, to I, persuade them that what we do actually is, is, an, is another way mm. of immersing themselves and losing themselves in something for, for two days and really getting to understand it and appreciate it, mm. rather than it being... Uh, a kind of soap opera thing where you take it, drop it, take it, drop it, which I think probably isn't what, but what we are really. You're, you're an optimist and that's wonderful because I'm very much an optimist as yeah. well. I remember my grandfather when I was a small child saying, oh, the audience is getting old and dying and the classical music has no future sort of thing. My parents, when, when the session work collapsed in the 90s, uh, saying the same thing to me as well, it's really difficult now, the audience is getting old and, and dying off, there won't be any audience, blah, blah, blah. And I read this every second day. It's fine. It's the, rubbish. The, 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 yeah, it's rubbish, yeah, though, yeah. because... We've been yeah. performing our music for 200, 300 years. Exactly. <laughs> so the chance of it disappearing tomorrow is relatively slim. I'd Precisely. Like also, I think the idea of the old audience shouldn't be looked at in a negative way. No. And a lot of people, it, is, it really is. Yes, but, but it shouldn't. They're the core audience. Absolutely. And, and it has yeah. been for a long time. It's not that the audience, when you know, I was going to concerts age you know, five or six or, or whatever, and would bring down the average age of the audience dramatically. But actually, that wasn't a much older audience and people worrying about the same thing. And a lot of those 
people will no longer be with us. Yes, and, yeah. and yet there are still people coming to concerts. Yes, um, and it, it might be, and then there's probably some research to, to be read that I haven't done. But uh, it, I think it, it may well be that actually people discover classical music later than we would perhaps like them to, um, and come to it later in life. Perhaps when they have more time after children left home, come to define uh, things uh, when, in life when they retire. When perhaps when they've got a, a, a bit more, a, a bit more spare time, spare money. I mean, I, if you were coming into London for a concert and you live outside town and you've got small children or, or even relatively larger children but you're, you're paying a babysitter you've got a train fare you've got a late night home you've got a dinner actually the concert it's ticket expensive. is virtually, no, no. It, virtually nothing compared to the general expense of, of doing that um, whereas later in life you have time to discover it and really to invest time getting into it and listening to more of it at home and, and engaging with it in a different way um, and I think that audience will always self-replenish as Absolutely. it were as, as totally more people agree with come you. into and it and it's really nice to yeah. hear somebody else saying it like that as well because like I say I, I grew up with it hearing that phrase yeah. and when I read it quite often it, it actually winds me up yeah. because it's not true and also I think the whole idea yes we need to look for younger audiences it is important to be able to, to get the uh, to give people opportunities but we mustn't ignore the fact that the core audience is a certain age group a lot of the time it does depend a little bit on the country as well a little bit yeah. on, the, on the place as well it, things tend to change when you travel around. And there's been some countries, uh, in Holland for example, you, you see a much younger demographic. At a yeah, Scandinavia maybe as well. Yeah. But I mean, going back to what you were saying about household names as well, um, yes, Previn, people like that were household names then, but in other countries, I mean, in Russia, Gergiev and Temir Kapnov are household names, mm. very much so. I was watching the Champions League yesterday, Gazprom uh, are um, sponsoring it so they have this thing and who do you see just before the, the end of that um, that little um, advert for them finishes it's Gergiev conducting they view it's cultural wow. diplomacy in a way wow, yes but people see the, the millions of people that watch Champions League will see him there so not just the Russians know I mean we're talking about a house on them within the classical music world anyway obviously but they realize the power of that that is um, the figure it's of something like that and see a conductor on a Champions League commercial, it's wonderful. I've always, I've always found it rather odd. Just going back to the, um, the aging audiences, I've always found it rather, rather almost offensive that people would, uh, would express their worries about an aging audience um, as though it's somehow a negative thing. Uh, I always find that annoying because I think, well, you've got an audience. You know, don't, don't offend the audience who've already bought their tickets. And also, it strikes me that it's one of the rare... Going to a concert is one of the rare occasions when I get to mix in a group of varying ages. And for the most part, my experience is I go out with friends who are the same age as me or uh, I might meet up with old school friends. Uh, it's one of the last communal experiences where I mix with different age groups. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's exactly. Yeah. That's the point. I mean, I'm preaching to the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. There is no disagreement here. <laughs> but you see, you see, again, as we're saying, it's different to different places. When I was studying in St. Petersburg, I studied as a conductor in St. Petersburg. Going to the Mariinsky Theatre was an experience because you would see uh, that the, well, first of all, there was this energy and, and excitement, which was probably how it was back in the '60s here. A lot of the young kids there with their parents were dressed up. And there was this buzz, an atmosphere that I didn't remember so much in London, let's say, when, when I, or Manchester, where I studied as a violinist. Uh, and it was probably very much how it used to be um, a few decades ago. 
things have changed. There's a different, different atmosphere in concerts. But when it comes to concert time, people listen, and that magic happens on stage most of the time. <laughs> 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 That's what we're there for. Uh, I realise that we've got 40 minutes into the podcast and I haven't actually mentioned anything about what you do now, Alexander. <laughs> that's, that's I think. No, what do you do now? You're um, running an orchestra I, I, now. Yeah, I look after the Academy of Ancient Music. You look after them? Uh, the, the world's foremost uh, period instrument, original instrument uh, ensemble. And how do, you, how do you think you get more people interested in the work that they're doing? Is that, is that a preoccupation for you? Uh, or it is, is a it preoccupation, um, and, and that's not so much a question of trying to change the demographic of an audience so much as, uh, as trying to just widen the audience that we have more generally. Um, and I, my feeling is that in recent years, uh, there's been a, a tendency to program some really, really interesting programs of lesser-known works, um, which for those who come to our concerts have been absolutely revelatory and fascinating, and the, uh, and the feedback has been incredible. The problem is that not, I'd like more people to come to this concert in the first place, right. and if the program's too clever or too intellectual, there's a danger that people don't, you know, there's such a wealth of concerts, particularly in London, such a wealth of uh, experiences on offer. Uh, we're a resident ensemble at, at the Barbican, and if you flick through the Barbican brochure, there's more than one thing on every night in that place yes. itself, let alone in every other concert hall in, in the city. Um, and we need some programmes that stand out a little bit off the page and encourage people to come to us. Um, and b- before we started, we, we just said very briefly, we were just chatting, uh, that historically there's often been some sort of isolation between the kind of period instrument movement and the, the modern instrument players uh, and that's starting to change and I, we're trying to break that down a little bit more by inviting some well-known brilliant um, modern players who actually play in musically a very similar way to the way we do but just on a modern instrument to come and try or not, not to try that's, that's a bit trite but to come and work with us to explore the way that mm-hmm. we play music and we, all the instruments we play with. Yeah, so we've got uh, Michael Collins will come in in the autumn. It'll be his debut on uh, with a, a period clarinet. But I mean, he is a phenomenal clarinetist and he's been so doing. He's playing Bassett. He'll be playing. Uh, he'll be playing uh, Bassett in the Mozart clarinet Sorry, concerto. I'm You're absolutely right. I'm that's very, um, that's why I know. <laughs> good knowledge. <laughs> really uh, annoying. But he will. But he will play the period clarinet for the Crisel concerto oh, in the first half. Really. Um, and he'll direct as well. So it'll be his first time on two period instruments. I hated the Crisel can. Uh, concerto. One, two, I'm sorry, three. I realised uh, all uh, the introduction of variations. Uh, one, yep. I played one, and I did the introduction of variations for my university audition. I hated both of them, oh, but obviously I realised that nice you programmed them. So <laughs> for me to for me to say that I hated That's them, it's one not really helping. <laughs> <think. laughs> well, you can come for the most start in the second half. No press ticket for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know I programmed them because I, I recorded them with Michael uh, right. last May in okay. Sweden. Um, you don't have to justify your programming no, I, choices, I, I, but I can, <laughs> uh, and they're, they were, they're rather wonderful. And we'll do some Salieri around that. So there's a bit of a Mozart journey. Chriselle was influenced. I'm not sure there are any letters to that effect, but I think very obviously listening to it, he's influenced by Mozart and the style of the time. So there's a kind of Mozart and his influences and influencers sort of theme. Um, but so people like Michael will come and uh, I mean, he's he's got a period instrument already and he's working on it. And by the time we get to November, I, I think it'll it'll work extremely so what well. So what was there? And I hope first? that will bring some other people in to our audience. Where if we've done it with uh, one of the better known period clarinet players, everybody in the period on, on, uh, world will know them. Mm-hmm. The majority of the audience will not know them. 
and so won't come. So you're bringing you're bringing different networks of audiences together. Exactly that, and then we'll try and get. I uh, think um, we've got Nigel Kennedy down to come and play Bark with us in December, and and so on. And so it, it's trying to it's to say actually you know. The periodism world is not this little closed clique of people kind of downstairs in the cupboard who knit their own sandals, which is the sort of right. the way it's the I way it's you looked haven't at. said that to, to members of the orchestra that you look after. <laughs> they, 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 they all know it. They all, they, they all know it. Okay. Um, How did that go down? It's, it's <laughs> the, well, it, it, that's the reputation of period ensemble. Okay, it's the kind of it's the vegetarian vegan yes, players yes. And, and it's all that kind of stuff. And of course, it isn't really, but that's just the, the stereotype. I just want to break that down a bit by saying actually we're not in a cupboard over here. Actually, no. we're out doing real stuff with real people and what did, like, what come, did the other musicians to, you know? say when you when you are people like because you're working with Nicola Benedetti as yeah. well what did what did she say uh, about the idea initially was there sort of and did she resist did you did she require persuading because it's a different technique uh, it is I mean uh, honestly Nick is not a great example because she in 2011 for a Decca record she did her first big kind of experimentation oh, uh, with this sort that. of music, and so she put gut strings on baroque and so right. on. And then she uh, she's really uh, really bought into that. Mm-hmm. Then and I, a couple of things I did with her while I was at Decca, uh, the iTunes Festival, and other things, where she was swapping from modern bow to baroque bow right. for appropriate repertoire and, and so on. Um, so she's very much sort of a, a champion for the course as well. And we're, we're well, playing if we could all agree in, that, in that that was a really awful example, maybe you could pick a better <laughs> example for um, me to illustrate my question. Well, but I think M- Michael Collins is probably the the best example because he's somebody uh, who I know reasonably well. Who I approached said, "What do you think? Do you think it'd be interesting for you?" And actually, he was all over. It would be a fantastic idea. And he knows a, a friend of his who has a large collection of period instruments. He's never really had an opportunity to play them or something to think about using that for. Um, and here was here's a chance. Here's something to say. Here, I've got a project. Let's go and try out this range of instruments that my friend's got and see if see if I like it. Do you see know? If it works do you know me. the name of the friend? No, it wasn't called Chris, was he? Don't I, know, but sorry. I once met a, met somebody at a festival launch event who talked to me about his massive collection of clarinets, and I was sort of both both excited and, and slightly slightly terrified at the same time because he d- he had hundreds of them and I said to him do you ever play them and he went no and you spent all that money on all of those clarinets and you don't play them um, I realise I'm being quite judgmental I'm probably well, skating I, away from the point but some people will do that with, with strads with, with violins oh, yeah. and we'll, yeah, you know, just put them in the safe or in it well I know it's, 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 it's a different world <laughs> yeah, but, but there are people who will are put are you making a judgement of violins over clarinets <laughs> well strad, yes. strad particularly is uh, people who are able to collect strads is um, well, they've just got a lot of money. Absolutely. They? Um, <laughs> they probably hate classical music, but they've got a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so, uh, some of the other concerts in the new season include what, Alexander? Uh, men, many, and many and varied things. Um, uh, we've started doing, I mean, as well as sort of trying to break down these strange artificial barriers b- between period instruments and modern instrument people, we've also started to do a bit of collaboration with other performing groups. And I think in a similar way there's been a tendency over the last well, decade or more um, for many new groups have sprung up playing music, whether there's orchestras, choirs, what have you. Uh, and every group tends to try and keep themselves very much to themselves. So we can't possibly perform with them because we're us and we only do our things. Um, and I rather think that the opposite. I think we should be open to collaboration with anybody, as long as it's good. As long as the quality is excellent and there's a, a good musical reason to do it. Uh, I think we should be open to working with other people. So we did some great stuff um, with Tenebrae recently, a couple of B minor masses uh, with them and in the British Museum in the romantically named Room 18. Which, the, the <laughs> <laughs> which if you know the British Museum, you'll know is the mm. Parthenon Marbles room. They're the, uh, the, the 
Parthenon Gallery, uh, which is a wonderful place to do that. And we, we do it twice more in May. In the, but it really uh, is Chipping called Room 18. It is called Room 18. Oh, is that because they ran out of ideas? I, I, yes, or they didn't want to antagonise people who were <laughs> trying to avoid the Elgin Marbles, I suppose. Um, uh, and we'll do a, a range of performances next season with the BBC Singers, as well as uh, some more with Tenebrae. Uh, we're at Grange, uh, the Grange Festival in Hampshire for Agrippina, uh, for the opera uh, throughout June. Um, March is uh, very nice for us. St. John Passion, the Good Friday Passion at the Barbican. If you want to hear a St. John uh, this Easter, uh, do come along at 3 o'clock, Good Friday. Uh, great range of solos. Yestin Davis, James Gilchrist, Lydia Torsha and, and others with Ricardo Minazzi conducting, so another violinist. Um, violinist turned conductor. Something yeah. strikes me that actually as a chief exec of a of an orchestra, you're probably called about, and maybe this is the same for you, Damien, that you're probably called upon to reel off loads of people's names and dates and events nearly all the time. Is that is that the case, or am I just making that up? I, probably not quite enough of the time, otherwise I could remember more of them. <laughs> I very impressed with, you, with, with, <laughs> with, with uh, your memory so far. Because I think half, half the issue, that sort of thing, is that a lot of my time is spent thinking about what we're doing in, at the moment I'm thinking particularly about 1920 and 2021, <gasps> uh, which soloists are coming in to do a Handel Brockers Passion for Easter 19, for example, and, and so on, and uh, what we might be doing in Easter 21. Um, and then to come out of that world to what are we doing this week yes. is actually quite hard. Yes. Did, did I really plan that now? Whose idea was this? Oh, I'm in Bath tomorrow. I think I'm in Bath. Was it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a lot of that. But, uh, but that's quite a nice thing to, for me to be getting used to. Do you consider yourself a maverick? No, I don't think so. Okay. Oh, oh. No. okay. All right. How about I you? I make records, I program concerts. I mean, there's okay. nothing well, unusual okay. about any of that. I no, I'm not saying that it's because of what you've just said that I think that you're a maverick. It's more, I was more thinking in terms of uh, bringing two performing groups together, which is something that other people perhaps wouldn't have done. Um, yeah. And I'm, that's kind of what you were saying. It is. Really I, I, I hope it's not maverick particularly I mean it, it just seems like a sensible thing to do to right. me just to say we're a great orchestra and say Tenebrae are just an incredible choir wouldn't it be great to do something together I don't and use the uh, term in a derogatory sense no. it's more of a compliment yes take the compliment thank you um, uh, and what are you up to Damien sir um, do you I like being called maestro please say that you don't no in England of course not in other countries <laughs> it's a f in other countries but it is a, is a normal way I mean the word maestro is an Italian word Right. So in Italy, they call you maestro because they do. Right. In Russia, okay. maybe. In England, if they call you maestro, you know you're in trouble. Yes. yes. So, <laughs> yes, you know. That, that means that. <laughs> yeah, it sort of depends. It's very much to do with the relationship with the orchestra. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, I mean. I mean, I wasn't wanting to slag off all of Italy by no, saying. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it's not like <laughs> I expected it either. very safe, I found, as a record producer, if you were working with a conductor you hadn't met before. And yeah, you forgot the name. The, well, <laughs> not as much that, but you think, I don't know whether, you know, you. you you go for the, the first yes. time I worked with Yap Van Zweden, you think, well, I, I can't say, ah, oh, Yap, and yeah. just call him by his first name, but Mr. Van Zweden is a little strange. And Maestro is a very useful cover <laughs> oh, in okay. that sense. Right. Uh, and it instantly makes me deferential and gives Maestro okay. the upper hand if he or she wants it. Right. Now, you don't have to take it, of course, as by you say, you know, call me this, call me that, or whatever. Um, but it, it's quite useful. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked at it like that. And it's also, especially on the continent, it's only like calling your school teacher so Mom, or miss. Or, right, okay. Yeah, my, 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 I live in generic. Italy, my children's yeah. teachers, the, the, the maestra, yeah. the teacher. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. right. I, uh, so I, they call them the maestra, so it depends on the situation. I understand what you're saying though. In England, if I hear it, I get worried. I, I, hear, <laughs> I hear it on the radio and I just think, 
stop that. Otherwise, I'm going to have to call the broadcaster and complain. <laughs> um, and if I can't get an answer, then I'll write. Anyway, um, but what are you doing? So, uh, what am I doing? <laughs> That's where we started. Um, well, I'm in the UK. Uh, I'm music director of Milton Keynes City mm-hmm. Orchestra, and we are continuing our season. So we have a number of concerts. Um, we have some great soloists, uh, Chloe Hanslip, uh, Stephen Huff Very in nice. March working with us. Um, I have my debut in Japan, in Kyoto, and then I'm going to Moscow next month to the um, Svetlana Symphony Orchestra where Vladimir Yurovsky mm. is chief conductor. And then towards the end of the season I have um, some performances of Boris Godunov at Paris Opera, the, the first version of Boris Godunov which is an incredible piece, oh. and really, and I'm really looking forward to it very Amazing. much. And I'm looking forward to returning to Paris, second time for me to go there. What are you doing in Japan? I'm doing the Respighi trilogy, the Feste Romane, mm-hmm. Fontane and uh, Pini, which I look forward to being half Italian, half English. Uh, it's nice to be going to my full Italian side, <laughs> and uh, my father's from Rome. I know the place very, very well, and uh, the pieces are so wonderfully descriptive, and I can almost smell the places uh, that they describe when I'm when I'm conducting that music. How lovely! Um, I just need two. I need two more things from you, and then you are released into the wild. Um, uh, number one is: Can you recommend a recording for me, please? Oh. Not like both of you together, but as no. in you know one each. Because that's kind of uh, how. Oh, right. look at you looking at each other nervously. Yeah, well, like, I'm sitting oh next to a record producer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not allowed to recommend your own, Alex. Oh, damn. <laughs> no, but it's a really can. good week. <laughs> well, any of my recordings, obviously, are ones yeah, to yeah, listen no, to. No, I need a specific one. Um, uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to speak about my own recordings, which uh, I'm, I'm doing some very interesting Italian repertoire, uh, unknown repertoire from the 20th century, like Malipiero, Pizzetti, Casella. Mm. Uh, Gedini, I've done a number of these with, with Naxos, and they're really, really wonderful recordings. Of Everybody they should go are. and buy them straight are. away. Yes. Uh, that's quite clear. But um, <laughs> no, I'm going to go back to some of the first recordings I ever was given, I suppose, by my parents, the violinists, uh, Sibelius with Jeanette Deveux. I'm doing Sibelius actually in a few days' time, the violin concerto. But these are, that's one recording that has always stayed with me and also Heifetz, uh, Sibelius concerto, of course Heifetz very much mm-hmm. um, made that concerto in many ways and uh, oh, I'm really going back to Arthur Grumio recordings of okay. Mozart for well, example. Well I mean you've, you've given us three. Sorry you so, asked you know, for one. That's great. No, but that's Typical fine. conductor talking no, that's too fine. much. That's no it's fine. <laughs> well that's enough isn't it? No, yes. No, it really isn't Alex. <laughs> you've um, still got to recommend Well I mean I'd, I'd obviously recommend anything uh, by the, the late great Christopher Hogwood and the Academy of Ancient Music. Uh, yes. but that sort of goes without saying, I suppose, in a way. Um, but they are wonderful recordings. I've been getting to know them better and better while I've uh, you know, uh, been part of the job. Um, I, I think if you like your Beethoven big and symphonic, I couldn't recommend you a better set of recordings to get than the Ricardo Shai uh, complete Beethoven set uh, on deck with Leipzig Um It's a really... A, it's an astonishing set of records. It's not one I had a hand in, right, uh, right. <laughs> um, and at all. So I, I'm claiming claiming no credit for it. But it is generally a fantastic set of Beethoven. And it's, um, as I said, it, it's modern instruments. It's it's bigger than the kind of ancient music would do, but it is a, a great thing to hear. My thanks to Damien Orio and Alexander Van Engen for participating in this podcast. Uh, you can find Damien on the internet at damienurio.com.
com, which is uh, his surname is spelled I R O R I O dot com. So it's Damien Oreo.com. You can find out more about the Academy of Ancient Music's concerts at AAM or AAM.co.uk, which I always think sounds a bit like a type of battery. You can tweet me at thoroughlygood. Uh, or you can email me at john.jacob, J-O-N.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.